We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Don't forget to rate us and review us, especially on Apple and Spotify. Apple, give us five stars. Write us a quick one to two sentence review. It's really, really helpful. Appreciate all of you that have done that. Uh, Tommy uh, is here today. And the bra. 13 wrote grew up in alexandria moved to raleigh north carolina several years ago kevin and tom keep me connected to my sports roots love the show and especially love when they discuss a show series like dope sick or mayor of east town um i did want to ask you because i have it on my list of things to talk about today are you watching gaslit or not i forget if you're watching it or not i told you to watch no, it but, i haven't i okay. haven't I haven't been watching it. I, I told you I I watched this great series called Wayne. I know you it's told an me unbelievable series. I know you've been trying to get and, me to watch uh, it. And and uh, somebody thanked me for turning them on to it on social media. So uh, no, I haven't watched. Yeah, I'm, I'm, look, I'm in the beginning of of the fourth season of Stranger Things. I'm watching that. Oh God, there's so much TV yeah. on, and this is the time for I me know. to kind of get after it. Gaslit, you know, is this is basically this show with uh, Julia Roberts and with Sean Penn, Julia Roberts playing Martha Mitchell, John Penn playing John Mitchell. Um, This is all about the Watergate era. By the way, we're coming up on 50 years. June 17th will be the 50-year anniversary of the Watergate break-in that started uh, the whole Watergate, uh, uh, you know, series of events. Sean Penn's makeup job to turn him into an older man, which John Mitchell was at the time, is incredible. I think I told you this, but my wife was the one that started to watch it. And then I caught up, and after the first or second episode, I said, man, they're really good. I, and I, I, It's a really good show. Julia Roberts is excellent playing Martha Mitchell. And you know the guy that's playing John Mitchell is excellent. excellent. My wife goes, that's Sean Penn. <laughs> And I said, what are you talking about? And then I turned it on, and I'm like, oh, my God, it's Sean Penn. He's excellent. But here's why I wanted to bring it up off of the um, very nice uh, review written by our guy, The Bra 13, is that the episode this week, and the finale comes this Sunday night, the episode this week, Tommy, was one of the wildest episodes of any show 
that I that we've talked about here. You know, any of these multi-episodes series. It was an episode called Year of the Rat. And the stars of this particular episode was the character who plays G. Gordon Liddy and then also uh, John Mitchell and Martha Mitchell. But it is a, an episode that outside of the, these two storylines, it doesn't have anything else. And the entire storyline uh, re- re- related to uh, G. Gordon Liddy is him already having been, been arrested and in jail. And him essentially going crazy in jail as he's trying to kill a rat that is that keeps entering his cell. And it reminded me of the Breaking Bad episode, The Fly, where it was all shot in the meth lab um, with, yes. with Walter and Jesse. And this fucking, you know, fly, excuse my, my language. Why did I say excuse my language? We always use bad language on this podcast. <laughs> um, and it's an episode that I found this out after the fact. I hated that episode. But many people loved that episode. But that episode was shot because they were running way over budget in season three. And so they came up and they wrote an episode that cost them the least amount of money. That's why The Fly was written and shot in Breaking Bad. Well, that, that's really creative then. That's remarkably creative. I mean, talking about turning chicken shit into chicken <laughs> salad. Right. That's what that is. Yes. So last this week, and I watched it last night. I didn't see it on Sunday night. Um, because I was watching the NBA game, which we'll get to in a moment. Oh, <laughs> um, so I watched the I watched Gaslit episode seven um, last night, and th- uh, much of the show is the guy that plays G. Gordon Liddy, and I don't know who this guy is and what he's been in. He's very recognizable. Um, by face, and I'm looking him up right now because I know he's done things, and I just don't know what he's done. But I'm sure when I see the list of things, all right, his name is Shay Wigham. What has he done? Uh, I don't recognize the name. Oh, oh my God! Of course, I don't recognize he was in the, names. He was in the fir- he was in the first season of True Detective, which we watched recently. He was in Silver Linings Playbook. He played Bradley Cooper's brother, older brother. <laughs> He was in The Wolf of Wall Street. So, yes, there are things that he's been in that... Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. He plays G. Gordon Liddy. And this acting that he did in this cell, chasing or trying to kill this rat, where he actually builds a, a, a rat or a mouse trap and doesn't catch the rat, but catches his own arm in the mousetrap. I don't know how much of this is true. I know Watergate's one of these things that I actually really loved studying in school. I think I mentioned this with you, or maybe it was on radio, that my uh, 10th grade sophomore year history teacher, uh, Wendy Egan, at Walt Whitman High School in Bethesda. Miss Egan was one of our favorite teachers. All of the guys loved Miss Egan. She was great. Um, and we did a whole, you know, quarter on Watergate. And it was, 
it was fascinating because I really, you know, I was too young in the moment to really remember or understand it. Other than I think I've told you before, I remember specifically where I was when Nixon resigned. But anyway, this episode is very similar to The Fly in that it's limited in the amount of production and shooting. Now, now there's John and Martha Mitchell and the breakdown of Martha Mitchell because of alcohol and prescription dr- drugs and everything else. That's really intense. And the acting between the two of them, phenomenal. But the dude that plays G. Gordon Liddy, all right, this guy, Shay Wigham, in this cell, which takes up 20 minutes of the episode at least, it's phenomenal. I thought it was incredible acting, and I think it's one of those episodes of a show that people who are watching the show will either really love or really hate. I really loved it. I really loved it. I would think I would. I would think I would really love it. I I remember, you know, where I was when Nixon resigned. Uh, and uh, I, I read all the President's Men. I read The Final Days, uh, the, the other book by Woodward and Bernstein. And uh, I used to make my journalism students watch all the President's Men as part of their of their class in, in, in college. I used to make that re- you know, that they had to watch it so they were aware of, of what happened there. So I, I, I think I, I, I got to watch this series. I, I have I, to make, make an attempt. I think you'll like the series, but really what I'm specifically referring to is this week's episode will be one of those episodes like The Fly in Breaking Bad. Also, like, you watched Ted Lasso, didn't you? Are you watching Ted Lasso or not? I watched a couple episodes of Ted Lasso, and I said, this is, I didn't see the attraction. Uh, it's basically, I thought it was a cheerleading session. Uh, I, I really like it. I thought I loved uh, season one much more than season two. But in season two, for those that watch Ted Lasso, there's that whole episode about the assistant coach, Coach Beard. And it was a weird episode. It kind of came out of nowhere. And as you're watching it, you're sitting there going, what's, go- what's going on here? What am I watching? This isn't the show that I've been watching. It was an out-of-left-field episode. But at the end of it, I was like, I really enjoyed that. It was really well done. And that's the way I felt about the Gaslit episode this week. I did not, I never still to this day, understand the attraction with The Fly in Breaking Bad. It's the only episode of the entire series that is hard for me to watch when it's on. Hard for me to watch, but it sounds like you liked it. Yes, I did. Okay. I liked it. All right. I thought it was great. Okay. Um, any? Uh, we've got Wayne. We've got Gaslit. Um, I don't know. I don't know what else we have. I um, I uh, was here, here's something else that I, I was watching, and the only reason I was reminded of this is that I just saw something on Twitter where it was it would have been Prince's. Uh, it's Prince's birthday. Um, I'm guessing it didn't say. I'm, I'm assuming that Prince would have been 60 something today. Let's see. He died 1958, so 42, 22, 64 years old. He would have been uh, today. Um, born June 7th, 1958. Um, the reason I bring it up is I'm a massive Prince fan. Have always been a massive Prince fan. And there was a an hour and a half PBS special on the Purple Rain tour in 1984 and 1985. 
and I watched, I, I only caught half of it because I didn't, I just saw when it was on and I caught the last, you know, 45 minutes of it. Um, and that tour in 1984-85, uh, he sold out eight straight days at the Capitol Center. I think that's the record for the most dates ever for a concert, you know, at the Capitol Center. I don't know what, you know, um, Cap One Arena, MCI Center, if they've ever had it. I don't think, I don't think, um, you don't see that anymore, do you? You don't see major musical acts playing, you know, eight straight shows at Madison Square Garden or, you know, at, at a venue anymore. That, that was more of a, a, a yesteryear thing. I think it was, right? I, I, don't th- I don't think you see that anymore. I agree. I don't think you see it anymore either. Although, if, if you did, I wouldn't know what was happening. How's that? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Because there are shows that come every once in a while. And, and now my, my son, you know, one of my boys makes me aware of it. But I went to three of the eight shows at the Capitol <laughs> Center during that Purple Rain tour. And still to this day, in terms of a live performance, and I've seen some really good live shows before, but I don't think I have ever been in an arena for a concert where the crowd was that juiced up for an act. Like, it was... The crowd itself was a scene with people dressed, the women that were there, incredible. Um, and because women loved Prince. But anyway, um, he was a phenomenal live performer. Phenomenal live performer. Um, that also just reminded me of one of the people that I went. I went one night with this uh, particular girl who very sadly at the age of like 32 or three, died in a car accident, which was awful. She was a very, very nice person and a nice girl. <laughs> what okay. else? Um, okay. Were you ever, well, you're like a bumper car this morning. <laughs> were you a Prince fan or not? Well, you see, again, I think this is like Top Gun. It's like a generational thing. I recognize how great Prince is musically. And there's some of his music who I like, that I like. But I think if you were of a certain age when Prince emerged, it had more of an impact on you than right. it did. I mean, you know, I'm 30 years old when Prince comes out, you know. And uh, while I'm not saying I'm an old man, the younger you are, the more impact and influence music will have of a particular artist for the rest of your life. What's the most memorable uh, concert you've ever been to? Uh, probably Jay Giles. God, you love Jay, Jay Giles. Giles yeah. I saw four four times, and uh, actually the most memorable concert I've ever been to, not in terms of a performance, except Jay Giles did play there, was uh, and it's fifty years ago this summer, January July eighth, I think, concert ten. It was a concert of the Pocono Raceway uh, in nineteen seventy two. That was kind of a Woodstock-like thing. They had like 20 different bands. It was supposed to last a couple of days. Uh, and I had a broken ankle. Uh, my cat, my one of my, I had many broken ankles, but this was one of the times when I had it. And my, my foot was in a cast and went up with a bunch of my friends to this concert tent. And after the first act, uh, it started pouring down rain. And, uh, you know, there were about maybe eight or nine acts that played throughout the night after that. But it was cold well, and well, rainy in my cast. 
Okay, Three Dog Night, Humble Pie. Uh, let me see. Uh, Jake Giles Band, Rod Stewart. Uh, it was big name stuff, and there were a lot of them. Uh, I think uh might have been Jethro Tull. I'm not sure if they played or not. But uh, so that's the most memorable concert, only because of my own personal experience. But Jay Giles is my favorite live concert. Also, to take it in a whole other direction, Harry Chapin. Really? I saw, I saw Harry Chapin three times, and it was like he was sitting in your living room with you, singing to you. You know, it was so intimate and so remarkable. And he was such a great storyteller. And, uh, yeah, I saw him three times. And one of the times I saw him, he played at East Stroudsburg University. And then uh, a bunch of my friends, we went to the Lantern Diner, our diner, mm-hmm. after the concert. Well, who walks in with Harry and his band? Oh, wow. And they wind up and they wind playing? up sitting with us. Oh, I thought you were going to say they played a, 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 show, a, no, no. a little private uh, performance. Oh, that's cool. No, they wa- they wound up sitting with us at, a, at at his big table, and we were telling him we were about to go play some street football uh, down at the Kmart parking lot. We tried to get him to come <laughs> play with us, but that didn't happen. That's the cats in the cradle guy, right? Yeah, but he's I mean, just a remarkable storyteller, the taxi guy, uh, W-O-L-D, just so much good stuff. What's the one concert or band or performer that you've never seen live, that you'd love to actually see live in their prime? Like, not now, but in their prime. Well, this is easy for me. I mean, I saw James Brown in 1981. and He was on the downhill slide, but he could still be James Brown. I saw Wilson Pickett. I've seen the Rolling Stones. I haven't seen, and I I didn't see Otis Redding. I would have liked to have seen, but he was dead by 1968. Uh, I never saw Bruce Springsteen. I really regret that. Yeah. And apparently he's going to tour again. And I kind of took a vow recently that I'm not going to any co- any concerts. I'll go with you to that one. Prices I'll, I'll get are to, absurd. I'll, really? Yeah. If, if he, I mean, if he plays somewhere close, I'll go with you to that one. I think I've I, seen Bruce a few I need, times. I need to go. I need to go see him. I mean, I regretted not seeing him when he did the Born in the USA tour. Uh. You know, back in the uh, mid '80s, early '80s, uh, and uh, that's the one I wish I had seen. Um, I saw Elton John. You know, I've seen Billy Joel. I saw uh, the Elton John all, all Billy Joel Duel concert. That was actually really good. Yeah. Um, I think I've yeah, seen I, Elton John I saw like Elton five John times. In, I saw Elton John in 1972 at the Harrisburg Farm Show Arena. Wow. And he was great. I saw yeah. I saw Elton John in a, in, in a total acoustic show at Constitution Hall. Like, you're talking about, you know, 3,000 people, super small venue, acoustic only. Him and his piano, and then he had a percussionist, and that was it. And that would have been like wow. 1981 or 82, something like that. I mean, I've seen him live in other spots too. Springsteen, I think I told you this once. I've seen Springsteen, I think, three times, and it is great. But I saw him in Philadelphia, which was really great. Like, I think if you're going to see Springsteen, it's like you almost have to see him in New York or Philadelphia, where the people 
are just insane over that uh, over his show. Um, and well, I, you've got the Jersey connection at either end of the state. Exactly, though. exactly. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, the one there's one band that I there to me because I've seen. I mean, I've seen the Stones a bunch of times. I've seen you two a lot of times. Um, you know, I've seen. Like, I'd love to see Nirvana. Obviously, that can't happen. But I would have loved to have seen Nirvana during their prime. Um, but I think the band that I would love to see more than... I never... I, I think in... I don't think I felt this way at the time, but I would have loved to have seen Queen during their their heyday. But Zeppelin's the one... You know, I saw The Who. I saw The Stones. I saw, you know, U2. I've seen Springsteen. Uh, Zeppelin's the one that it would have been so cool to see them you know, in maybe a stadium show with decent sheet, uh, seats and decent acoustics back in like the 70s. Because I think they're, they're one of the bands that I didn't appreciate when I was younger that I appreciate so much more now. And it's, it, it's still like I go through these phases once a year where like two weeks I'll just, that's all I'll listen to. Um, but that would be the one I think, I don't know, I'm trying to thank anybody else. Um, there are other people too. Like I, I, I wouldn't. I think I would have loved to have seen Pink Floyd live because I heard their shows live were incredible. Um, yeah. Okay. Do we have any sports to talk about today? Yes. Well, we, we got do. we got that 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 great NBA Finals, don't we? So you apparently told me before the show that you tweeted out, "Thanks, Kevin, for recommending the NBA Finals." And what else did you say? Well, I will call that tweet up for you right now. It was Sunday night in the middle of game two. Yeah, terrible game. And uh, I, I tweeted out that watching Celtics versus Warriors on NBA on ABC because Kevin Sheehan told me to. I could be watching Major League Pickleball Finals. <laughs> I could be wa- I I could be watching Deadly Yoga. I could be watching NHRA Drag Racing. But no. I'm watching this. Guess what I kept flipping back and forth between during that horrendous game, especially in the second half? The pickleball. Pickleball? On CBS Sports (laughs) Network. Yes, I did. I was watching some of the pickleball because I I, I think I've told you that's like one of my new favorite things right now is pickleball. And it's so cool to watch it on TV. Yeah, my wife is out playing pickleball right now. So uh, can she get you out there yeah, or not? I, I occasionally will go out. I mean, I have limited, I have limited range. But then it's kind of, it's a game that helps you or doesn't hurt you as bad if you have limited range. That's like, right. It's not like tennis. Yeah, no. I mean, the, so it, it, yeah, exactly. So I, I, I enjoy playing it. Uh, I just won't go out of my way to play it. But if I'm with my wife and they need me to play, then I'll play. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's funny because my wife wants to get into it as well, and so we've been sort of just hitting the ball back and forth. And you know, and I've said to her, I've it, it, she got upset when I said said this. I said, you know, it's really a sport where you don't have to be like super athletic to play. And she's like, oh, you know, and then she got upset because she thought I was kind of identifying my wife. My wife is not overly athletic. She was definitely not an athlete as a younger person, but she's not, you know, 
she she's capable of 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 participating in sports. I mean, she, she can hit a tennis ball back and forth. But anyway, I'm going to end uh, that uh, part of the conversation right there. It is true. Yes. It is true that the you know you don't have to be like in great shape or super athletic to play a casual game of pickleball with people kind of at your level, and it, tennis. You know, you get to a certain age. I mean, I know a lot of guys much older than I that that are still playing high-level tennis, but it is way too much wear and tear, and you've got to be in shape, you know, to play tennis. And the other part about tennis too, Tommy, is if you're not playing with somebody your level, like if you suck compared to the person you're playing or you're much better, you spend half of the, you know, uh, of the hour that you're playing just walking around picking balls up. You know, it's it's not even that fun. Pickleball is much faster paced. You're playing points almost all the time. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a good, um, there's a lot of good things about it. I think obviously the people that are decent at it have very good hand-eye coordination and good hands. And then the people who are exceptional, uh, doing it are good athletes and, and, uh, and have a level yeah. of quickness and movement that, you know, is important to play it. Like you could see that when I was watching the pickleball stuff on CBS Sports Network the other night, there's just a lot of, like, the people that are playing it at a high level. Although there was one woman who was out there that was not super athletic, and she was clearly very, a big, big woman um, and not moving very good, but she had phenomenal, phenomenal hands um, and was really good. But anyway, okay, so you didn't like the NBA game. It was a bad game. You Did, did you watch game one? No, I didn't watch game one because I wouldn't have bothered to watch it except you asked me to. And being a good uh, podcast uh, co-host, partner for you, I said to my wife, I said, look, i got to watch this tonight. Kevin asked me to. We're going to talk about it. I really can't fake my way through the whole NBA Finals. i got to be able to, to have some idea what's going on. So I watched it. And, and what I think, I, I thought the same thing I thought before I watched it. it it's not even basketball. It's not even basketball. But, but you didn't and watch game one. Your top ten, top ten list for Steph Curry. You know, I've been thinking about that really hard lately mm-hmm. about top ten all time NBA. Right. And every time I think about it some more, he drops down one more player on the list. Well, did you see him in game two? Because okay. you watched game two. Yeah, I saw him in game two, okay? And I know this will drive you nuts. He couldn't even be on the court with Jerry West. <laughs> Not even on the court. Oh, stop, please. No. You know what you no. should do? i tell you, you what. Jerry West is ahead of him on that list. You know who's ahead of him? Allen Iverson is ahead of him on that list. He's not a top ten player. No, Allen Iverson is a different conversation than Jerry West. Um uh, but uh, what was so incredible about what was a lousy game, and by the way, um, your podcast partner asked you to watch game one when we were on together on Thursday, um, and you didn't watch No, you didn't. Yeah, game you one. You didn't ask me. Game one was Thursday night. So. We did a podcast together I Thursday know, but morning. you didn't ask me to watch no, it. No, but you said you that say- you said to Liz – You know, instead of going in there, I'm paraphrasing, instead of going in there and kind of faking it, which, by the way, of course you can do. You've been doing that for 15 years with me. Um, (laughs) You you really need to sit down and watch. Well, you didn't watch until Sunday night. 
So Thursday night right. was game one, and Thursday morning we did the podcast. So I'm just saying, if you felt the urge, or if you felt like out of some sense of responsibility, I don't know why you wouldn't, I know you're making that up, that I have to watch the game, you should have watched game one, which was what? a thrilling game. Um, what was I doing Thursday night? I don't even remember what I was doing Thursday night. It must have been something important. <laughs> The thing about Steph Curry. But anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go. No, you go ahead. I just, I, just, I was, I was. It's, it's not basketball anymore. Game, it's not. Game two was really, really hideous. Uh, you know, Boston was clearly tired. Jason Tatum looked hurt. But what was really exceptional about that game was Steph Curry's defense. He was incredible defensively, and I know I'm saying that in kind of a comparative to Steph Curry as a defensive player during the course of his career environment, like he's never been a great defender. He was incredible the other night, so much so that, you know, I read afterwards that Steve Kerr, you know, essentially singled out how great defensively Steph was to make the point that he's not as bad defensively as people like to make him out to be, and he certainly wasn't on Sunday night. Um, and he was brilliant offensively, per usual. Uh, but yeah, no, Curry for me is you know what we talked about last week. He's somewhere in the you know in the ten to, to to fourteen discussion of all time. Okay, well that's different than top ten. I might put him in the top fifteen. I said that. He Although had to the win more the I series. think about it, I I add an I add another player uh, to to the to the list ahead of him. But uh, I might grant you top 15, but I don't think Allen Iverson nearly gets enough run as one of the great players in NBA history. Okay. I don't think he does. I mean, just, just amazing what he did, given his size and his game. He was, I mean, he was you know, great. going inside with when, when big men still, still dominated the game was just, just amazing. Allen Iverson was a a special uh, player, an all-time player. Oh, my God. You know what? Guess whose birthday it is today? Prince's birthday and Allen Iverson's birthday. Swear to God. Wow. I I just pulled it up because I wanted to see how many times he won the scoring title because I knew it was a lot. And the first thing that popped up was that it was his birthday, June 7th, 1975. He's 47 years old. It's at least three times. Three times, right? Four-time scoring champ. Oh, okay. Four-time scoring okay. champ, yeah. Um, yeah, he's yeah, – Iverson's an all-time great. He is. I think – I think like, let me – what would I say that – in saying that Steph Curry is better? Well, I would say that Steph Curry's a better shooter, but Allen Iverson could really shoot it. But, but Curry was a better long-range shooter, period. And that's the difference. You know, we talked about this last week, but – Curry is the great, you know, you could argue that Curry's the greatest shooter of all time in NBA history. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to argue that with anybody because I think he's right there with some of the all-time greats I've watched, including Reggie Miller, um, you know, Bird, et cetera. Um, but, um, yeah, I, Iverson's, Iverson's a phenomenal all-time player. Phenomenal all-time player. He is. Yeah. I, I think I'd still take Steph, but I loved watching Allen Iverson play. Happy birthday, AI. 47 yes. years old. The Happy answer. birthday, buddy. Uh, by the way, you know what? I might as well do this right now. Um, 
44 years ago tonight, the Washington Bullets won their only NBA championship. June 7th, 1978. Whenever it's June 7th, I always remember that date because that was the date that the team that I actually really want to see good again, maybe more so than even the football team these days, um, I, I I remember this so well. I remember all of those players. I remember that series against Seattle. And, you know, what's so interesting about that series is for those that have been watching Winning Time or have watched it, you know, that first season of Magic Johnson, which was the 79-80 season, in which, you know, they won the title uh, in Philadelphia. And it was, you know, Magic and Bird as rookies. And Bird won Rookie of the Year, but Magic was, you know, the finals MVP. He was the finals MVP, right? Um, with the, you know, the all-time great game six in the spectrum playing center with Kareem out. That was, you know, a lot of the early part of that show was discussing about how the NBA ha- was in decline, in major decline, which it was. Yes. And the, yes, it was. And that was off of the Bullets and the Sonics playing back-to-back finals against each other in 1978, 44 years ago, when the Bullets won in a seventh and deciding game at, Seattle, uh, at the Seattle Center Coliseum. Uh, and then the following year, when the Sonics in the rematch beat the Bullets in five games, uh, those games were not highly watched. The NBA was considered at the time, and you saw this in winning time, to be too black. Um, they had a drug problem in the NBA. Uh the NBA was in major decline. There was there was the thought that the NBA may not survive as a league when Jerry Buss bought the Lakers from Jack Kent Cook, or certainly that there could be some retraction, which was what the uh, conversation was at the time, and in part because the two finals leading up to Magic and Bird's rookie years were Washington and Seattle. They were not compelling national matchups. But, Tommy, the matchup before the Bullets won in 78 was indeed a very popular, highly watched, highly anticipated NBA Finals between Bill Walton's Portland Trailblazers and the stars of the 76ers led by Julius Irving, led by Dr. J, in a great series that Portland won. It was a memorable series. and, and Bill, That's when you saw the greatness of Bill Walton. In that series, oh. when when people say that if Bill, Bill Walton is probably a top five center of all time, some people say that, and I'm, I I would tend to agree with that. It's based on a short window because of the injuries he's had, but in terms of of scoring, rebounding, and passing at that high a level, I mean, he's among the best ever. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, and I've told you to watch, you know, Jokic um, for the uh, for the Nuggets because I think in watching him, I'm so reminded of Bill Walton. I now, you know, it's a different game and he shoots threes and he's a deadly three-point shooter. But I, I always thought that Bill Walton's the greatest passing big man that I've ever watched. 
but I think Jokic is right there with him. He's that good of a passer. I mean, I'm looking up. I wanted to see how many assists he averaged this year. He averaged as you know, playing the center position. He averaged eight assists. I mean, that's amazing. Um, Walton's best year assists-wise was that championship year. He averaged five assists per game. But he was so great. He was so gifted. And injuries obviously, you know, derailed what would have been a career that we'd still be talking about today because if he had stayed healthy, he would have been, you know, one of the, you know, 10 greatest players of all time. He would be on that list. You agree with that, right? Yes. Yes, he would be. Um, I agree. You know, right. talking about the NBA, I, I took I took a note of something, one last thing. Yeah. I read this story, uh, and I don't quite understand who Fitch Ratings is. They assign ratings to uh, NBA. Uh, well, they assign ratings to companies based on their financial health, I think. And uh, they reported that the NBA just recently borrowed $254 million. From, from whom? Why? Uh, well, I don't know. From a bank and for what? From their credit. That's the thing. It doesn't say for what. I mean, that, that, that's eyebrow-raising, that a league that, quote, supposedly is doing so well, unquote, has to go out and borrow $254 million. Why? It doesn't say why. I mean, I mean that's 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 a little bit alarming to, to me if I was an NBA fan, and I was talking to somebody inside the game many years ago, not many years ago, just a few years ago, who told me that thirty to forty percent of the teams lose money. Yeah, well, you and I had that conversation with yeah. with Leonsis that day. We were with him many many years ago. He said we yeah. we need to make playoffs. We need to make the playoffs. We need to have an additional two, three, four home games. To break even, you know, I, I, the Warriors so far in this postseason have made an extra hundred million dollars in top line revenue because they've had all I these know. home playoff games. I know, you know, I know. It's amazing. I will tell you this, you know, um, you, you know, our friend John Orient, who does Sports Business Journal and has the newsletter, and I get the new- newsletter, and it's outstanding. Um, he uh, indicated that Game 1 of the NBA Finals, which was a good game, Game 2 was not, did not do a good ratings number. 11.9 million watched it, and it was the lowest Game 1 in 15 years. Now, that excludes the Finals of the last two years because they were played right. you know, in July last year and the year before in the bubble. Yeah. So taking those two years out, it's the... Um, lowest game one audience in 15 years. I, what's interesting, and John mentions this, he says, I expected the finals opening game to track alongside the rest of the NBA postseason and post a comparable audience, um, especially considering that the game was close into the fourth quarter. Uh, if the series goes six or seven games, as most have predicted, expect the audience to rebound. Yeah, you know, the numbers for what have been, I think, a very ho-hum, you know, boring NBA playoffs with lots of blowouts have been pretty good for the most part. But game one wasn't. I have not seen the game two numbers um, from Sunday night. Maybe, you know what? Maybe a lot of people were watching the pickleball on Thursday night. (laughs) Uh, Maybe. We've got. Maybe. But uh, you know what I suspect? One last thing. What? I mean, it, my go-to suspicion would be, I and mean, they've lost a lot of money in China. 
Oh, that's a big over part of it. Over the tension. A hundred percent. Over the tension with, with China over the past few years. I think they thought they were going to, you know, make hay in China, and then the bad, you know, relations started, uh, and, uh, you know, they weren't even broadcasting, I think, NBA games in China for a while. I, so uh, I, I bet you that has something to do with it. I think it does. In fact, you know, I had um, – this guy Daniel Kaplan from The Athletic, the business reporter, on the radio show this morning because it looks like the Broncos are going to sell for $4.5 billion to one of the Walton heirs. Um, by right. the way, this Walton heir is worth just a cool $60 billion. It'll make him the second richest owner in sports. Um, Ballmer will be number one. Steve Ballmer, I think, is still the wealthiest owner of all the, you know, the major North American sports teams anyway. Uh, but... I asked him at one point, and I, I think the question was something like, other than the NFL, what's the next you know, healthiest sport? And he did say the NBA, but he made a comment about China, which, I, which you know, essentially mirrors what you just said. I think that's part of it because it really is – the NBA really is a global sport. You know, it generates yeah. a lot of revenue worldwide, um, but you know, perhaps not nearly as much as they had hoped – uh, when they decided to uh, lie in bed uh, with uh, communist China. All right, let's get to some football talk uh, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This segment of the podcast is presented by Window Nation. With home prices on the rise, there's no better time than now to improve the look and value of your home with new windows from Window Nation. You buy two, you get two free right now with no limit. You put no money down, make no payments, and pay no interest for two 
full years. You get a free estimate. That quote is good for six months. Call them at 866-90-NATION. Go to windownation.com. Mention my name. If you've been thinking about new windows, I would urge you to give Window Nation a shot. Again, mention my name. Get a free estimate. Shop it if you want. You're probably not going to find a better deal. You're paying half price on the windows, and you don't have to make a payment for two full years. So I talked about this on the podcast yesterday solo, but I wanted to get your reaction to it. But before you do, um, our good friend Andy from Gaithersburg, you're familiar with Andy from Gaithersburg. Yes, I am. Um, Yes, I am. Andy, Andy sent me a text about all of these themed games for the upcoming season where you know they're going to have a blackout game against the Vikings and a whiteout game against the Cowboys and all of these different things and and he said in 23 years Andy from Gaithersburg writes Snyder has turned this team from the Patriots into the Bowie Bay Sox <laughs> with one <laughs> promotional night after another uh well, at least they're at least they're not doing monkeys riding dogs, okay? I, like like a like a minor league game would, <laughs> or or the or the dynamite lady. What was you know? the What was the dynamite lady? Was that a Chicago White Sox would, thing? No, no, no. The dynamite lady was a woman who traveled around uh, the country, minor league games, would put herself in a box and and have it explode. <laughs> I, I don't remember that. I don't think I've ever yes. seen Dynamite yes. Lady. Wow. Yes. And she survived each so, one. I guess she did. So that's that's kind of what they've been reduced to. You know? Well, the, uh, yeah, I got a lot. I, well, I, I, they're, they're, I want they're your trying. opinion on this. They're I making just, an effort. Okay. They're making an effort. They're, they're trying. Right. Is that your reaction I mean, none to these, it? None of, and I, I'm trying to, to bend. I'm trying to. Oh, turn over a new leaf here. Try to give him the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> really? <okay>? Really? <laughs> a little bit. Oh, you're not giving a little bit. You certainly aren't giving Jack Del Rio the benefit of the doubt. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm not. Well, maybe they'll have a Jack Del Rio promotion in here. Maybe Jack know? Del Rio will uh, block you on Twitter. Well, he already has. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, just, he just did it this morning. Yeah. But uh, you know, these aren't particularly exciting. Promotions. I mean, I don't know, you know, uh, what would have been much better, but there is, you know, the the alumni weekend that everybody looks forward to, uh, and and things like that. I will say one thing: this is a big mistake, and somebody in the room should have realized it. Week seventeen rivalry week. We want Dallas a whiteout game. That's not a good game to do that because it will be very clear then. To everybody in the stadium, who the Cowboy fans are and who the Commander fans are. Yeah, Because now, you'll have all this blue from Dallas jerseys, and then you'll have the little Commanders group with their white T-shirts or whatever. Yeah, probably. That would stand out. It probably would have made sense to do that game for a game in which there might not be that many opposing fans. Um, yeah. So, you know, I got a lot of feedback on my discussion of this from yesterday's show. And I, you know, it's not that I'm turning over a new leaf here like you apparently are doing. 
But I, I said, you know, look, I, it would be it would be talking out of both sides of my mouth if I made fun of this for being embarrassingly collegiate and small market, which it is. Um, but and, and then said that I hate it because I've also been saying they're in the customer acquisition business. They have to market their team. They don't have enough customers. They have to market to a new audience. Uh, a new demographic, a, a younger demo of of customers. They they're 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 lucky that they're in the NFL, where they get one thirty second of this ridiculous television, you know, money, um, and they'll never ever go out of business. They will always be a viable business as long as the NFL continues to share equally the TV revenue, um, the the media revenue, really, because who knows where the media revenue is heading um, in the future. But as long as they're sharing that, it'll always be a viable business. But on every other aspect of the business, they have turned very much into something not minor league-ish, okay, that's an exaggeration, but kind of, you know, um, uh, you know, in desperation of fans. You know, they called this inaugural uh this you know commanders announced game themes for inaugural season and even though i understand the inaugural meaning the first year of the commanders it's the way that they're approaching it in their business this is a whole new game for them you know 2222 was the changing of we don't have to, we, we got to treat this like it's a startup business we have to treat it like we just opened up a restaurant and nobody knows about us. And, you know, hopefully the food is good, meaning hopefully they'll win, but they can't count on winning. And so that's why they've put together this long list of, of things that will attract younger people, like the eventual unveiling of the new mascot in week 17 against the Browns, which is going to be a year-long fan engagement program. Let's hope it's more fan engagement than what led to the Commanders, because I don't, I don't know one fan at this point that said Commanders was what they were looking for. Um but the new mascot will be unveiled then. You know, you've got the whiteout game, the blackout game against the Vikings, the whiteout game. Younger people love that kind of thing. Uh, you've got the debut of the revamped fight song. Um, but then you also have things that appeal to the older group. They're going to honor, you know, the legends of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. I don't know how many of those guys are left in week one. Um, you know, we talked about this yesterday. They're going to honor all five world championship teams in week seven against the Packers. Um, they're going to honor the Hogs in week 17 against the Browns. So they're trying to also appeal, you know, give reasons for people who have been fans for a long time that haven't been going to games, maybe reasons to come out. The Sean Taylor thing to me, look, I said it yesterday and I'll say it with Tommy here because he hasn't heard it. When I read debut of a permanent installation, all, all, installation, all, I, could, all I could think about was a statue. And I, I think that that would have been a massive mistake to build a statue yes. of Sean Taylor. Yes. And Huge mistake. I mean, I can go down the list with all due respect to the late Sean Taylor and what a great player he was and what he meant to uh, a lot of Washington fans, he's not in the top five statue list. He's not in the top 20 statue list in the history of this organization. I'm trying to be 
I'm trying to be kind. Okay, but I, uh, but I, you know, I'm being, res- I, I'm respectful to Sean as well because I actually really loved Sean Taylor, the player, and I know how younger people feel about Sean Taylor. They don't have, you know, Monk and Daryl Green and Jake and Rigo and Theismann to lean on. They don't have that. They don't remember that. So you know, these last twenty years that have been so painful from a win loss standpoint, you know, Sean Taylor's their guy, and I get it. I totally get it. And again, I was fine with his jersey being retired, just not the next jersey after Bobby Mitchell. And a statue would have been a major mistake. So apparently they're not doing a statue. They're doing a shrine. They're not doing a statue. Do you know what they're doing? Do you know what they're doing exactly? No, I don't. Okay, they're doing a. uh, This is what I was told. They're doing some kind of shrine to Sean Taylor. That'll be in the stadium somewhere. I said on the show yesterday, make sure it's not on the club level. Make sure it's accessible by everybody. Yes. Um, Yes, absolutely. And make sure that it's done in a nice, you know, kind of first-rate way, unlike what happened, you know, last year with the rushed, you know, Jersey retirement ceremony. But. A lot of people, you know, got on me a little bit, as they often have whenever the conversation of Sean Taylor comes up. And I'll just repeat with Tommy what I've repeated many times before. When it comes to Sean Taylor, great player on his way to being all-time great, he, he, he because of the tragedy, you know, I understand why, you know, this owner and this team wants to honor him, and I have no problem with that, honoring him in every way possible. Statue would be over the top, and I think retiring his jersey as the third jersey retired in franchise history was over the top. And I think it was rushed, and I think it was rushed because there was some bad publicity at the time, and we know that this was not a planned venture. So, um, you know, it's, it falls under the category of special exception in terms of his jersey being retired. But I've already given everybody the list here, and I'll do it again with Tommy here. There are seven players who have played for this organization that since they are now retiring jerseys, deserve on merit to have their jerseys retired without any debate. Sonny Jurgensen, Daryl Green, Sammy Boss 33, which was the only one retired before they decided to start retiring numbers again and did so with Bobby Mitchell's jersey. Charlie Taylor's 42, John Riggins 44, Bobby Mitchell's 49, and Art Monk's 81. Those are the seven that you do. If you are a longtime fan like I've been of this team, lifelong, um, you understand that if you're sitting there at the table discussing jerseys to be retired, those seven are set aside and say, these are the first seven we're doing. You know, we've already done Sammy Ball. We did Bobby Mitchell. Now let's put in order the rest of them. And once we get those done, we can start talking about the next group and whether or not they're worthy of having a jersey retired. Uh, I will just say, again, I want Sonny's jersey to be retired sooner rather than later. Charlie Taylor's jersey hasn't been retired, and he won't be alive to see that when it right. happens. I think Sonny's should be next. But um, after that, you know, 
Jacoby, Grimm, Hamburger, Brown, Houston, Theisman, Theisman. you know, and Sean Taylor is kind of a debatable category. And then you get into kind of the reaches, you know, Doug Williams, Brian Mitchell, Pat Fisher, Monty Coleman, Dave Butts, Dexter Manley, Gary Clark, and Jerry Smith. You know, those are the ones that... No, but you're right. Your list, your your top not debatable list, I think, is accurate. Yeah. I would agree with that. I don't think any. I mean, you've written books on the history of this team. They're they're all available still. Yeah. Um, you can't debate any of those people in terms of Jersey retirement. There there was a debate to be had on Sean Taylor because he certainly didn't earn it based on he didn't earn it. You know, uh, on the field with production, not his fault. Understand, he was gunned down tragically in his own home. It was one of the saddest weeks. Uh, that all of us have ever lived through as fans of the team. Um, but anyway, uh, all right. So do you have anything else on this? Which game are you going to go no, to except, celebrate? I, well, I'll go to all the home games. You know, <laughs> I'll go to them all. Unless I'm, unless I'm blocked from going to games, too, now. Unless, unless Jack Del Rio blocks me from going to games, too. Um, you know, I recognize that, that Jack Del Rio is a legitimate badass, by the way. And I'm just hoping that's all he does is, is block me on Twitter. Well, look, we're not going to get into what he's been tweeting and retweeting and liking, no. and we've done that before. Right. The bottom line is... We don't is, need to get in the context the, of that. It's, it's just, he shouldn't be doing it. The bottom line is he's the defensive coordinator for an NFL team, and you know, if you want to be controversial, go do it You know, uh, on, a, on a team that... You know, is it has a great culture and can withstand it. I mean, I can't imagine, even if Ron Rivera agrees with some of what Jack Del Rio likes and retweets and comments on, I can't imagine that they're thrilled with the attention that he gets with his Twitter account. No, I don't think so. But uh, I, I, look, I give I give the team uh, credit for coming up with a, a, a list of promotions to try to to get people to come to Ghost Town Field. Yeah, I do too. I do too. I, I, I understand what they're trying to do. It's what we've talked about before. They are trying to build and grow a business that isn't reliant on the team winning or losing. Um, I've, I was told you know, a year and a half ago, they're trying to build a business that is losing resilient. <laughs> Um, and that's uh, an interesting uh, business to be in. So there was one other thing that I wanted to talk about as it relates to the football team, and it's the excitement that comes out of OTAs uh, for some. Uh, We'll get to that next right after these words from a few of our sponsors. So I wanted to finish up the show today with this. Uh, Logan Paulson former tight end for uh, the team. And by the way, a really nice guy. I like Logan a lot. Um, Logan's come on the podcast before he's come on the radio show. Uh, I've, I did this hit with him every uh, Sunday before games uh, because he's part of the pregame show. Um, and I really like Logan a lot, and I think he's really good um, in breaking down film and talking football. It's funny, tight ends, I think, just in general, are tend to be sharp guys, and I like Logan a lot. And so um, Logan's doing a lot of work for the team. I know that. He's doing a lot of work with Julie Donaldson for NBC Sports Washington, et cetera. 
But I, I don't know where he said this. I only saw the tweet from Hogs Haven. The tweet read last night, Logan Paulson said Jahan Dotson is absolutely dicing people up in OTAs and is near uncoverable. And the only DB that's been able to stay on him is Benjamin St. Juice. Now, I think even Logan understands that these are OTAs and that you shouldn't get overly excited about it. And if that's what he's seeing in OTAs, he can say that without saying Jahan Dotson's going to tear up the NFL in his rookie year. But when you say something like that and you're Logan Paulson, boy, the fans are going to take it and run with it. I, by the yep. way, get I to like, the betting window, baby. <laughs> get to the window. Get to the window and take your June, July, and August rent money and put it on Dotson <laughs> and whatever his over-under on catches is this year. I like Jahan Dotson a lot. I've t- I talked about him before the draft. I talked about him after the draft. Uh, I think he's going to be a really good player. I just I watched a lot of him in college, and I think he's going to be a really good player. By the way, I like Benjamin St. Juice, too, in the limited amount of time that I saw him. But I am not going to be convinced on Jahan Dotson or Benjamin St. Juice based on what's going on in OTAs. Uh Brendan Dar, my producer for radio, found a bunch of articles that were written this time last year. Um, Jamin Davis, you remember him? He was the first-round pick of the team last year. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, was he having some OTA days. So much so (laughs) that he was declared the winner of the OTA days and a potential defensive rookie of the year, and who knows – Maybe a defensive player of the year. And the guy, Koromoa, that they were going to draft, remember, out of Notre Dame, but he went in the second round to Cleveland, and they passed on him. Nah, they they, they made the right call on Jamin Davis. Our good friend Christopher Russell uh, wrote uh, extensively about OTAs last year at this this time. (laughs) We We love Chris. We love him dearly, but he was going um, nuts about Jamin Davis. Color us pleasantly surprised because we think Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, again, the guy that a lot of us thought they were going to take in the first round of 2021, of the 2021 draft, uh, because we think he's going to struggle to be a true Mike linebacker in Cleveland, and some in the NFL share those concerns. There's no doubt that the Washington linebacker core should be better this year with the addition of Davis. But the wild card could be second-year player Kalik Hudson, who got some valuable experience, uh, yada, yada, yada. He's off to a strong start in OTAs and kicked off this week with a fantastic interception that got everybody fired up at a practice session on Tuesday morning. Look, I love Chris and I love all these people. They're, they're our friends. And there is an audience for tweeting out the excitement based on what they're seeing at OTAs. And tomorrow will be a media availability for OTAs. And you'll be able to follow along with all the beat reporters that will be telling you about the dimes that Carson Wentz is dropping in the the hands of a wide-open Jahan Dotson because he is slicing uh, and dicing people up and is uncoverable in OTAs. This... 
every year, I bet you, if we went back and we did any real research, we could go through OTAs, minicamp, and even training camp and find so many narratives that came out of it. By the way, some of it from coaches. Some of this was from your guy, Voodoo Jack who was talking about how Jamin Davis is, you know, a potential rookie of the year defensive candidate. Um, it just, you don't know. Well, what would you have these reporters do? No, 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 I'm not knocking it. There's an audience for it. Okay. There's an audience for okay. it. Okay. We've talked, we talk yeah, about this yeah, every I mean, year. You can, only, you can only report what you see. That's right. You know? Yes. And, uh, and it's, it, you, you can't keep writing, uh, like, like you just plug in the sentence, but this is OTAs, and remember, you know, you can't put a disclaimer on everything you tweet about OTAs. Well, you could. Like the disclaimer. You, well, you, you, you could. could. It would be awfully cumbersome. Uh, it would be awfully cumbersome. I know, but I'm not, look, I'm not suggesting that Ben and JP and Nikki and uh, Chris and, uh, you know, and, and Sam and all the people on the beat are sitting there when they tweet out unbelievable, uh, you know, route run by uh, Deami Brown and a great, you know, one-handed snag in the corner of the end zone by Cam Sims. I'm not suggesting that they are extrapolating that this means something when you get to the regular season. They're telling you and they're reporting on what they're seeing. I understand that. The people that take that and run with it and then believe that somehow what's going on in OTAs is like an absolute uh, translation into what you'll see in the regular season, well, they're gullible. I mean, they're complete and utter, you know, naives. Like, they, you, you can't – you've watched enough football out there, haven't you, to know that none of this really matters. But I was going to make one – exception for none of this really matters. And that is that somebody like Logan Paulson, you know, the people, the, the famous, famous Kirk Cousins line, people who know, know, you know, when he said that about, you know, any kind yeah. of criticism, people who know, know. Um, Logan Paulson played in the NFL and he played an offensive skill position spot, tight end. And he's seen enough wide receivers and tight ends, you know, running around in shorts to know if somebody really looks different from others. Like, it reminds me of the Jeff Bostick, Desmond Howard story. You remember this, right? Oh, yeah. First day of training camp. Yeah. First day of training. It may have been the first day of minicamp. It was the first day of something when it was really hot out and real games weren't being played and they were running around in shorts. And Jeff Bostick afterwards was asked, you know, how did Desmond Howard look? And he said, he, he can't do it. And, so, and the, the reporter said, he got hurt? What do you mean he can't do it? No, no, no. He, no the, the, I'm sorry. Let me, refer, let, me, let me tell you the exact line. At least this is the, the, uh, the lore of this story. He can't play was the line from Jeff, Jeff Bostick. What do you mean he can't play? Was he hurt? No, 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 he can't play. What do you mean? Well, he can't get off the line of scrimmage. He can't get separation off the line of scrimmage. You have to be able to do that at the NFL level. I mean, that's – so players can see stuff before the games are actually played, and they know a lot more than we know. 
And so I am, you know, from Logan Paulson, willing to say he is seeing something in Dotson that is different than maybe you see this time of year um, and is special maybe. But again, for the most of this, uh, most of this stuff, it's like we just got to wait, guys. Got to wait. Yeah, we, we have no you're idea. You're right. You're right. Logan, Logan Paulson certainly, you would think, except he's being paid by the team, would have more credibility uh, than other people who would watch OTAs. But he is on the payroll. Okay, I think he is. Uh, yeah, I think he is. Or the he's, it, maybe it's the NBC Sports payroll. I don't know how that works. Okay, well, well, I don't that, know. that's one and the same. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, same thing. Tr- that's true. So, so, uh, and here's the other thing: he's going against the Commanders' uh, defenders. <laughs> okay, you know, I mean, there's something. Well, no, no, no matter what you think of them, I mean, you know, he is going against guys who, you know. Who are are not the opposition? They're teammates. You think Jack notices no. how good Benjamin St. Juice is, or do you think he's just buried in his phone reading tweets and retweeting things? <laughs> I, I think he's trying. He's trying to figure out what else he could do to me after he blocked me on Twitter. Oh God. Um. I don't really have anything else. I think this Phil Mickelson story is, you know, and I think this LIV tour is really interesting. I had Mark Schlebaugh, who covers golf for ESPN, um, on uh, the show. Oh, I know what I wanted to read to you. Um, Bob Herrig, who is uh, a golf writer for Sports Illustrated, got Phil Mickelson and interviewed him about a lot of different things. For those who haven't been following the story, Phil Mickelson hasn't played golf for like six months um, after making a lot of comments about this new LIV Saudi-backed tour, which Dustin Johnson has now uh, resigned from the PGA Tour, a lot of players heading there. Um, There's a lot of reasons uh, that they would be heading there, but the number one reason is money, gobs of it. Uh, Tiger Woods, according to reports, turned down a nine-figure offer to go play on that tour. Nine figures, just so everybody understands, is a hundred million or more. Yes. Um, and you know, uh, DJ got you know one hundred and twenty-five million or whatever it was. Uh, I think I think it's kind of an interesting story. I do. Uh, I look. Some of these guys are making the the kind of money for what they're uh, the guarantees that they're getting, and then this is a fifty-four hole, forty-eight player. Uh, tournament that has you know twenty five million dollar purses where if you finish dead last out of forty eight you're still going to walk with like one hundred and twenty k you know there's no cuts so it's pretty attractive financially compared to the PGA Tour anyway Mickelson did this interview with Herrick and the gambling stuff is obviously very interesting to me you know that he had lost forty million dollars in betting on sports and gambling and so Herrick asked him. Um, he said, uh, so given the amount of money being offered and certainly what we know the purses are to be, there is a suggestion that you are doing this due to financial difficulties. Can you address that? So it was really about gambling. And Mickelson said, quote, my gambling got to a point of being reckless and embarrassing. I had to address it and I've been addressing it for a number of years and for hundreds of hours of therapy, 
I feel good where I'm at there. My family and I have been financially secure for some time. Gambling's been a part of my life ever since I can remember. But about a decade ago is when I would say it became reckless. It's embarrassing. I don't like that people know. The fact is I've been dealing with it for some time. Amy, his wife, has been very supportive of it and uh, uh, and of me and the process. We're at a place after many years where I feel comfortable with where that is. It isn't a threat to me or my financial security. It was just a number of poor decisions. And then a follow-up question from Bob Herrig. What about gambling on the course in practice rounds, which you've always used as a way to prepare. So the gambling, the reckless gambling, you know, I've heard that it was mostly sports betting, you know, betting on football, betting on basketball, betting on sports. And he had a major right. gambling problem and lost a lot of money. But that he was also, you know, a, an addicted gambler on the golf course as well, which many people are very, very into gambling while they're playing golf. Call me one of those people. So I was curious to see how he was going to answer this question. And he said, on the golf course, it's creating competition. But it's the anxiety, the other things that come across with gambling off the course and addiction off the course that I really need needed to address. Closed quote. So he's saying that the gambling on the golf course creates competition it's a way for him to prepare and it doesn't include the anxiety and the other bad things that come across with gambling off the course and the addiction and the issues that that causes and it causes a lot of bad things for a lot of bad people because it is you know an addictive thing and a sickness but I'm telling you Tommy seriously for what I know about gambling and I know a lot about gambling and I know a lot of bad stories about people um, and gambling um if he's gambling, it's kind of like drinking. You know, I don't have a drinking problem, but, you know, I can have one drink. Well, apparently, you know, alcoholics can't have one drink. Gamblers are the same way. You can't just gamble in that environment and say, I'm fine. This is for creating competition. This is for preparation for me. I would worry about that from his standpoint, that he's still gambling on the golf course. But that's just me. Do you think the off-the-course stuff that he was talking about included the people that he owed money to, maybe? Oh, I bet that – well, I think – well, I think there's a lot of are – you, are you talking about, like, the anxiety and the embarrassment and what it does? What are you, what are you referring well, to? I'm referring to the guys with noses that go sideways. Oh, oh, like the Billy Walters of the world and the, the insider trading stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think that he, I think there, there, he was probably, I mean, I'm speculating here. I think there was probably a lot of issues. I think he owed people money that he couldn't pay off without maybe changing golf club manufacturers and doing different things to make more money. I think he probably was a, a dishonest in his most important relationships in his life. I bet the anxiety over the gambling losses led to, you know, temperamental kind of things and, and, and a difficult guy to probably deal with 
you know, he had a lot of – this guy had a lot of stuff going on, not to mention that he's also one of the world's most famous athletes, and he's really good at what he does. Thank God he's really good at what he does because yeah. he was able to, you know, clearly, you know, pay off a lot of these debts. I mean, the, the story was in the book that it was, you know, $40 million worth of gambling losses. I don't care what you're worth, and he's worth a lot of money. You know, I don't know what his net worth is, but I would guess his net worth is close to a half a billion dollars. You know, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, whenever you're involved in gambling and, you know, in big time gambling, you know, I, I, I guarantee you there were casinos. I can't guarantee this. I don't want to say I guarantee it. I bet you there were, cas- there were casinos that he was in that he sports bet or, or maybe, you know, lost a m- bunch of money where he took out markers, you know, at tables in Vegas and, you yeah, know, maybe. And, and, and owed, you know, casinos a lot of money. And maybe, you know, for a guy as competitive as him, it was painful to pay it off. And by the way, then you get into that situation of, oh, shit, I own 15 million bucks or I own 2 million bucks or whatever it is. How do I pay them off without my wife figuring it out? You know, like there's all that stuff going on. You know, he, I guarantee you part of this gambling disease that he had, he was living a lie in his personal life. Sounds like I have a lot of expertise in this area. Yes, it and, does. And I do, but Sounds you like know, a motivational speaker to me. Well, look, I'm gonna tell you that I have not had that issue for many, 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 many years. But and I never had what I would call an addiction. Um, but I knew people that had addictions, and I can certainly remember the days long before getting married and having kids where I gambled more than I could afford. And that's not good. That's why, you know, all of this conversation about gambling and, you know, and legal gambling and it's why the, some of the stuff from Ted Leonsis in the, you know, in, in the last couple of years has been off-putting to people like me who understand so much more than clearly he does, unless he's just being completely disingenuous. You know, to suggest, as he did in those early days, that this gives people kind of the opportunity to generate income and, you know, almost have like a career, like really smart, data-driven people, analytics-driven people. I mean, it's just so either disingenuous or incredibly, incredibly ignorant and, and, and naive. But anyway... Uh, if you want to bet the NBA playoffs, go to mybookie.com or mybookie.ag. Use my promo code Kevin DC, and they'll match your first deposit dollar for dollar, all the way up to a thousand bucks. By the way, I would recommend for anybody to do it that way, where you can't do it on credit. When I say credit, I'm talking about ah, I'm good for the money. No, put it up. Feel the pain of putting up the money up front and actually then losing it. Because when you bet on credit illegally with people, you know, uh, that, you know, require a meeting once every couple of weeks in, in in a place with a brown bag, you know, you, yeah, I know, I know I'm down, you know, I know I'm down a thousand bucks. I'm good for it, but you gotta let me keep betting. That's a problem when you don't have to put it up. Um, all right. What else you got for me? I got nothing else for you today, boss. 
You going to watch the NBA game Looking tomorrow night? Looking forward to game three of the NBA <laughs> finals, buddy. I can't wait. All right, that's it for the show today. I'll be back tomorrow. Tommy, Tommy will be back with me on Thursday. 